Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. For ConnectingVets.com, I'm reporter Phil Briggs, and our next guest is my fellow Navy vet who's deployed to Afghanistan and today fights to ensure our government doesn't turn its back on our vets as the head of government affairs for IAVA. Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, Mr. Tom Porter. Tom, good to talk to you again. Hey, Phil. Thanks uh, for having me. It's great to be with you. Great to, to be online with, a, with another uh, Navy sailor. What can I do for you today? I'm wishing we didn't have to have such a tough conversation, but it's one that uh, you know you and I have passed through the halls of different different press briefings over the years on Capitol Hill, and uh, I know we cover some of the tough issues when it comes to the veteran experience. And this week was a tough thing to watch. First, I wanted to kind of open this a little bit by your perspective on what happened this week, and before we even get into your perspective, share with me a little bit of your history because I know that you got some Afghanistan in your history as well. Uh, yes, my uh, for my civilian job at IAVA, I uh, run the advocacy efforts at the federal level and our outreach to Congress, the administration, and uh, and run our DC team. Um, and that's uh, that's what I do. I've also got uh, second life in, in, as a Navy reservist, and um, I did spend a year in Afghanistan uh, in 2010, 2011, where I spent much of my time in Kabul, but also uh, traveled. Uh, great deal of time around the country to see different parts and meet with different officials and see the Afghans in training. And then I also had a good, good experience in, in partnering with and mentoring uh, civilian Afghan officials uh, within their government. So really great experience and really this uh, recent developments, you know, hit home with me uh, just because so much of my time and not just me, but I, I know so many of my, uh, my, uh, military colleagues in and out of the Navy, uh, all branches and what they've 
sacrificed and endured and their families and what their families sacrificed. And so it's, it's a big deal for all of us in our community. Share with me one of your recollections from your days in Afghanistan. Um, what was one of your immediate takeaways after that deployment? Because I know like 2010, it was relatively, I mean, we're about halfway through the game that we've played in its entirety right now, right? We'd been there already about eight, nine years when you were there. Um, share with me one of the things that you took away from your experience in meeting and training and working alongside our fellow Afghan fighters. One big takeaway that always lives in my head is in my many travels around the country and a lot of that was just to and from bases around in Afghanistan via vehicle. And, and I would see every time we'd go out of the, out, out of the wire, out of the gates, uh, I'd see, if it was in the morning, I'd see kids walking to school. And in the, in the beginning when I was there, I saw a few boys uh, walking to school. But by the end of a year, just a year's time, there was a lot more kids, but also a lot of girls walking to school. And so that's probably the visual that keeps popping up in my head when people say, what do you remember about it? I don't remember the things that I did so much in terms of for the Navy and for NATO, our NATO command, but it's really those kids walking to school. I also remember um, watching over time the um, the buildings going up, brand new buildings, roads being constructed, um, businesses being started. All that said to me that that uh, Afghans were willing to bet on their future with their wallets, with their livelihoods. It, it meant that they you know, were positive enough about their future that they were willing to dump their money and their savings into this stuff. So those are two big visuals that stood out. Um, it's uh, unfortunate where we are at this point. I hope, I hope we see a lot of those victories still uh, move on into the future. Right on. Now, in the past, you've spoken about some of the military side of things and uh, some of the things you did as a public affairs professional over there. On the military side, um, much of my time was uh, was uh, working with Afghan media and um, uh, new, new to the business, um, Afghanistan uh, journalists that were just getting into the business and just starting to to uh, observe their Western media counterparts and I would. I started a program where we would travel around the country um, and bring the Afghan journalists uh, with us. It was focused on them because they couldn't take part in our normal embed program, where where media would embed for days and weeks at a time. Because culturally, the Afghan media could not stay out overnight because the rumors would get around about why is he leaving his house overnight? What's he doing? You know, so we had to do things all in one day. That was a big thing that I enjoyed doing is working with the Afghan media, developing them, uh, their professionalism, and also working with the government uh, media uh, agency that uh, would, would do press conferences with an Afghan leader and a NATO or American leader. And we did those every week from agency in Kabul, but then also around the country at press conferences out in the field. It could be an 06 American and his counterpart. And these are press conferences directly to the Pentagon press corps, which they enjoyed because it's not, you know, an admiral or a general standing at the podium feeding them, you know, the, the comms of the day, but they're getting and being able to answer questions from 
Afghan and American and NATO commander directly in the field. Sometimes rockets would come in during these press conferences. So those are the key takeaways that I remember that I thought felt really, really good about. We did some great things in terms of standing up um, their media ability so that they would be professionalized. Those are some big victories. But also just seeing the training of the Afghan military around the country, too, and seeing the, the hunger and the passion for a lot of the troops that were in training and that they wanted a better future for, for themselves and their families. Yeah, Tom, from the countless stories I've heard, it is little things knowing that you're making a difference in some other place in the world that could use a big brother, could use a big sister to help show them the way. Um, it goes without say that this week then uh, was tough to watch. Share with me your initial thoughts. Monday, you see the news break. Taliban has now assumed leadership of the country again. What went through your mind? Um, really tragic. Um, it was chaotic and avoidable. Um, and I was, I was mad, still am. Um, and, uh, you know, I th- my thoughts kind of are all over the place and they change from day to day, sometimes hour by hour. Um, I talked to a lot of veterans and they kind of say the same thing. Um, some are so angry, they don't want to talk about it. Um, and, you know, obviously the, the Taliban takeover was quicker than probably most people thought. It just happened so fast. I think a lot of people, including me, um, I thought that they would that they would take over eventually after we left, but you know, most people that I talked to uh, didn't think that it would happen so fast. And so that's where where I am right now in watching the the visuals, the videos, the the evacuation. And you know, even though there have been some missteps by our government, big ones um, in recent weeks, but I think what what you're seeing right now, what I want to underscore to Americans and the veteran community especially, is that the American uh, military troops that are there at the, the, uh, the airport in Kabul are doing an amazing job. Um, they were put in a situation in a, a really a disastrous scenario. And you're seeing them doing heroic things. Look at... Look at the crew of that C-17 that had to make a a snap decision when, you know, a crowd of Afghans piled into their plane and they flew off with six to 800 people packed into the plane with no seats. They're just sitting on the floor and this crew had to make a decision whether or not they should go. And they did. Um, Those guys are heroes. But really, that's an example uh, that we can look at where you've got troops on the ground and you're going to hear stories probably soon about what some of the other service members, the Marines and the soldiers are doing to secure that, that airfield. They've got a monumental job and it may get bigger and more dangerous in just in the hours and days to come. So I just, just want Americans and the veteran community to know that, that even though there are some missteps by the government, you, you set our, our service members down in danger like that and they're going to succeed they're going to win and so uh keep keep watching and, and pay attention to what they're doing check in with them check in with their families because they're probably really nervous and scared about that
Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs, reporting for ConnectingVets.com, and we'll continue our talk about the fall of Afghanistan. We'll return to my conversation with Tom Porter, a Navy vet who served in Afghanistan and is the head of government affairs for the veteran organization Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. Now we'll jump back into the part of our chat where Tom's explaining how IAVA is not happy at all with the way the current administration has handled this whole thing. Let's first talk about what you want to see this administration do right now without hesitation, clear-eyed, without blinking. What do you want them to step up and do? We need the administration to evacuate the thousands of of Afghan allies, uh, partners of ours that serve shoulder to shoulder with us in combat uh, and and elsewhere throughout uh, Afghanistan to um, um, to keep us safe and to move Afghanistan towards towards um, freedom and stability. Uh, even though we didn't realize a lot of our goals there, um, we we depended on them and they risked their lives to to work with us and they risk their families' lives. And they have targets on their backs from the Taliban right now because of their partnership with the United States and NATO forces that we partner with as well. And so some of them have been killed already um, and their families are in danger. And so many of them are, are that haven't been evacuated and not many have, uh, less than a couple thousand, I believe so far. But as many as 17, 18, 20,000 uh, total Afghan uh, allies, some of whom applied for special immigrant visas um, and their families. Uh, so if you can do the math, it's probably 70, 80,000 ish um, Afghans that are in danger. And also to bring our American citizens that are non combatants home too, if there are any left. Uh, it's hard to evacuate them when you just have control of the airport in Kabul uh, and the roads are controlled by Taliban. Now, in looking at where we are today, is that what pisses you off the most? Is that this was avoidable, that with all the military we might we had at Bagram, at all the, all the Chinook helicopters, all the all the C-130 aircraft, all of the military might that we had over the last two decades, that we surrendered that territory, we turned it over before we did the major evacuation. Yeah, actually, you, you kind of took the words out of my mouth. Um, I think what sticks out of me a lot is when they closed um, Bagram Air Base, is the, our biggest air base in the country. Why did we close that base before we evacuated everybody? Why did we take the bulk of our forces out before we evacuated everybody? Now we're having to bring people back in and use a smaller air base to accomplish all this. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of complicated factors going into that, but I think what a lot of people can understand is are, are those main developments. Why did we do that? Bagram air base uh, was a, a massive um, facility with, uh, and the, the, the people and the, the equipment that we had, the airlift capability, and it could have made a difference in what we're trying to do now. Now, as we look at the total amount of people we want to bring back over here and we want to help them get to the freedom that they so richly deserve by helping us, um, it begs the question. My mind kind of struggles to square 
there are people there that did their dead level best to help us and be our friends as we were trying to help liberate them. But then there was that day or those days in the rural provinces. And then as it got closer to Kabul, where each town and province just seemingly fell almost without a fight at times. Is it fair to say that everyone deserves all 80 to 100,000 possible people that, 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 that have stood shoulder to shoulder with us? Is it fair to say that they all deserve to come here or at some point in time, should they have tried to be more rigid and defend their own territory? That's, um, a, fair, that's a fair question. And I think that question is going to be answered differently depending on who you talk to amongst uh, Americans and those who served over there. Um, you know, the special immigrant visa program has its own requirements um, on uh, official um, um, documentation by American government officials on what those people did. Um, so I'll just leave that, that there. I mean, there are others that would like to see it more broadly, obviously. Some would like to bring, you know, a lot more people that, uh, um, that served in the military and so forth. Um, and I'll let everybody speak to themselves on that. Um, but there are going to be some that we worked with that, that will uh, apply for asylum. We'll have to see. But really, I'd, I'd like to help out as many as we can that have risked their lives in helping us. Right on. And I'll ask you to expand a little bit on where I was going there uh, with respect to how many people we do need to bring, how many people we do need to evacuate, uh, and what we should consider when we look at what some see as a failure of them to fight, but what others would say is really the sins of a weak-kneed government that failed to support those that assisted us shoulder-to-shoulder on the ground. Right, and... You know, I mean, there's plenty of stories about uh, the Afghan service members not not fighting, but it's more complex than that. Uh, and w- we'll learn more in, in future days and months and years. So so many reports of of Afghan soldiers on the front lines standing by to combat the Taliban, but you, it's hard to fight when you don't have any food. And you know, when you have supply lines that are failing you, not bringing you food and ammunition, and you're not getting paid. Maybe. We've known that oftentimes Afghan service members weren't paid on time. Mm. And so when those factors all add up and then you start to see the um, previous administration uh, working with the Taliban to to develop a timeline to leave. And then the current administration leaving Afghanistan very, very quickly. And I imagine there's a, a huge rumor mill going around, probably facilitated by the Taliban hey, guys, this is your last day. You might as well give up now, and we won't kill you. I mean, those, those are all factors that, that probably populate the Afghan soldier's mind, and they, they may have, have uh, determined that it's in their best interest to, to say, hey, you know what, I, I need to go home and care for my family. Um, you know, so, yes, you know, there are legitimate concerns uh, amongst Americans and service members that maybe some of them should have fought more that's not going to make you want to fight anymore, you know, especially if you're hungry and you haven't been paid and you don't have any bullets for your guns. Always way more complex than it appears 
on social media. And that's one of the things I want to underscore with you, because I know nobody knows it better than Iraq, Afghanistan, Veterans of America, um, IAVA. You guys have been dealing with these issues for years, and all of you have the actual experience, boots on the ground experience and firsthand perspective that you saw what went on. And I trust your judgment implicitly, uh, which is why I want to hammer home the fact that we need to do everything we can to get our allies out of there and to safety. Um, one last thing on that is phase one has been a foobar. I mean, we can safely agree, right? This thing couldn't have gone worse. The plan as it was rolled out just was not even thought all the way through and it ended up horrible. Now we look at maybe what could be phase two of this. And do you think it's possible for us to set up some place to stage safely so we could then get the ex-filled Afghanis to be processed with the special immigrant visas in a location like Guam or in a place like, I don't know, Qatar um, across the border in Pakistan? I mean, is it feasible to say phase two could be fixed? Sure. And and yes, there are places that we can bring them to. Uh, I'm confident the, the U.S. government's working on those locations. Um, uh, Guam is something that's been talked about a lot. Guam was used as the main staging location for Vietnam when we, when we left there. And they've got the capability to do that. I know that there's been um, willingness um, expressed by certain um, um, officials in Guam that they would like to have them. But that's another story. Um, bottom line is that we've got to find places to take those to safety. And lastly, uh, it was just simply the last paragraph of the press release that came out earlier this week, but I found it very profound because uh, you end with uh, something that you say is most importantly uh, to address the military families and the veterans themselves. Uh, What do you want to say to the vets that are looking at this week and just having a lot of conflicted feelings? I want to say that your service mattered. It absolutely did, because there are lots of questions right now about amongst veterans, service members, and their families, especially Gold Star you know, families I want to pay attention to. Um, did, our, did, our, did our service matter? Did, did my, uh, the service of my husband, my wife, my son, my daughter, did, did that service matter? And I want to say that, that it absolutely did. We uh, enabled thousands, millions of Afghan young people to go to school and go to college, many girls in school that would not have had that opportunity. Uh, the American embassy put out a statement just probably a week or two weeks ago, one of the last normal statements that they put out uh, that said that in 2001, 3,000 men were in college in Afghanistan. And uh, less than a year ago, over 330,000 women and men were in college in Afghanistan. That's amazing. That says that because of us and because of our NATO allies, being in Afghanistan and doing what we did, regardless of what's happening right now, millions of young Afghans, including women, have gone to college. That's amazing. And and hopefully some of them are going to make a difference in in Afghanistan still in the coming uh, months and years. But also many of them may have left Afghanistan and I'm sure there'll be bright spots around the world wherever they are. But big picture wise, what a lot of people aren't looking at is because of our investment over the last 20 years since 9-11, when Al-Qaeda was able to to plan and launch attacks against the United States from that country, 
Um, they haven't been able to do that since then. And they've been dispersed and that capability has been decimated. Um, and that 20 years enabled us space and work with our allies to combat uh, terrorism, both at home and abroad. So that service of the last 20 years enabled us the space to do that. Indeed. Tom Porter, I could talk all day, brother, if you are doing the right thing. And I always appreciate the great work that IAVA does on the veterans behalf. And um, I thought of you and I thought of this whole situation this morning uh, before this call uh, as, as I put my kids back on the school bus. Something that, you know, rite of passage in America. I got a kid starting kindergarten this year and one in elementary school. And I looked at that bus and I looked at those kids and I thought, brothers and sisters, that's what you fought for. And that exact experience that I'm having in my little cul-de-sac, in my little neighborhood, in my little neck of the woods is a vision and a glimpse that we gave Afghanis over the last two decades and that those seeds have been planted and that fierce appetite for a better life is something that we actually helped fuel for them with two decades of blood, sweat, and tears over there. And yeah, it should and never I, be forgotten. And I also want to say that, that the, one of the most recent lasting impressions that I have is that President Ghani invited uh, a group of us veterans to uh, the embassy when he came here to visit the president. And we we traveled there to meet with him and he met with us, the veterans, before he met with the military leaders or President Biden. But what sticks out most from that day is uh, Ambassador Ramani, the first uh, female ambassador to the United States from Afghanistan. Uh, she was there uh, and it turns out that was in her last days as ambassador. She left shortly thereafter. But I took my daughter, my 15-year-old daughter, to meet her that day. And I got my picture, my daughter's picture, with uh, Ambassador Romani as an example of this is a, a trailblazer and the first female ambassador to the United States from Afghanistan. And, I, and it sounds like she had just talked to our board member, uh, former VA Secretary David Shulkin, just yesterday in a podcast. And so it, it, it's obvious that she's safe. And so we hope to see great things and uh, from her and that she continues to be safe uh, in the United States or elsewhere. Outstanding. And I think back to how we started this interview and your visions of kids going to school and who knows what they will grow up to do. We pray that they continue to see the light of day, but it should never be forgotten the sacrifices we made and, and, and really the great things that we've done. I appreciate you continue to kick them in the rear and keep them honest up there and make sure the right thing happens. IAVA, Tom Porter, always great to talk to you, my man. Sure, sure. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.
Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.